Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Brent Hendrich, who is a freelance engineer based out of Nashville, who has been in the industry for over 20 years. He's worked on a Dove Award-winning record. He's also made contributions towards Emmy Award-winning compositions. And he's worked on a ton of great music in a variety of genres, including rock, pop, EDM, soul, jazz, singer-songwriters, you name it. And in this episode, we cover a lot of ground. We get into how to break into freelancing as an engineer and some of the traps that you want to avoid when you're getting started. And how to focus your energy on the right areas so that you can get clientele and actually make a living off of this and survive those early stages when things are rough and you're trying to figure out what to do or who to contact. We cover all of that stuff and Brent shares some great tips on how to break into the industry. And we also get into a really cool chat about how limitations can help foster your creativity and they can actually make you a stronger, better engineer. And again, Brent shares some great tips on some exercises that you can do to help strengthen your engineering skills and to put things to the test so that you can optimize your processes and work more efficiently. So with all that said, I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. There's a lot of great stuff to take from it and some really actionable stuff to do as well. So let's just jump right into it. Brent Hendrich, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. What's going on, man? Not much. Thanks for having me. Of course. For people who might not be familiar with you or uh, the, the work you're doing these days, can you give us that story on your background, how you got into music production and ultimately mixing these days? Sure. Yeah. It started, I mean, my love for music started at a very, very early age, um, just two or three, four years old. I loved listening to my parents' music collection. I had, you know, a collection of my own and just always wanted to to listen and dance. And and um, so that's kind of where it first started. Later on, maybe 12 years old or something, I got my first guitar. It was a gift from my uh, grandparents. And I just started learning just some basic power chords and, and um, started, you know, play, jamming with friends at school. And then that led to playing with bands uh, in high school and, and uh, playing some at church. And then, you know, from there, uh, forming a band, uh, we started, you know, recording our first DP in high school. And, um, you know, it was kind of when I, when I first fell in love with the whole studio experience. That was, I guess, in the late 90s. And we worked at a studio that had just a very basic Pro Tools rig. And I thought, you know, this is the coolest thing that we can write these songs and record them on this computer and then burn it to a CD and, and, uh, you know, share it with my friends later that day. And so um, when it came time to do our second album, I had saved up some money from my job and uh, had just a very basic PC and bought a a, just a really cheap eight input uh, interface. And we, you know, set up a studio in my parents' basement and we, um, started just you know recording some of our ideas there we had a little mackie uh mixer that we used for our preamps and we borrowed some mics from the church and uh it was just a very basic setup but you know over the process of a you know a year or something like that we started recording our our full-length album um and that's when the bug really bit me that would have been i guess probably 98 or 99 and that's when i was like okay this is like i'm really passionate about this and this is not just, you know, playing in a band, that's cool and all, but I don't really want to be in the spotlight. I, I like this behind the scenes, creating something uh, and taking as much time as I need to to make this product to then share with others and entertain others. And so um, from there, I was like, okay, forget this band thing. I want to uh, look into school for audio. And so I, you know, looked at uh, Belmont here in Nashville. I grew up in East Tennessee. I forgot to mention that. Um, so it's about four and a half hours here from Nashville. And um so yeah, I was looking at maybe some, you know, some options in Nashville. It was a music hub, but it wasn't super, super far from home like LA or New York. And there was a few options. There was MTSU, which still has a good program, and uh, Belmont, um, which is another good program. And then uh, the school SAE had just opened up down on Music Row, which is was like a nine-month program. And um, with some mentors had, had advised me that, hey, you don't necessarily need a four or five-year, you know, degree to do this music thing. It's more about you know what you can what you can do and so um they convinced my parents that you know college wasn't absolutely necessary and uh, came down and toured sae and 
and thought, you know, this is going to be a good option. So in, in 2000, just right out of high school, I graduated in 2000. Um, so I moved to Nashville when I was 18 and uh, got an apartment with a buddy. And we went to, you know, we're, he was actually another a friend, a friend of mine that was also in, in the band that I was in. And he uh, wanted to pursue audio as well. And so we uh, we did the nine-month program there at SAE and had an apartment just outside of town. And yeah, so after finishing SAE, um, still was madly in love with, you know, making making uh records or recording music and the whole process and um you know started doing some internships i was working at starbucks part-time while at sae and and met a guy who was a big uh composer for for television and then that led to an internship uh, and so i got to you know work a lot with him on the the music that he was doing for daytime television um whether it was engineering some strings or his piano or tuning some vocals um, you know, working in a secondary studio, uh, like his, his B room, you know, doing overdubs, uh, it kept me pretty busy. Um, and then from there, I, you know, was still working at Starbucks part-time and, and met another, uh, mentor of mine, which led me to, you know, start making, um, records with him. And that was more like rock stuff in the, in the Christian side of things. And so that was really exciting time because we were working on major label stuff. And he was one of my favorite producers in high school. So it was really cool to be working with, you know, for him. Um, and that led to, you know, me helping him with a record that won a Dove Award, which was was exciting. It's kind of like a Christian Grammy for anyone who doesn't know what that is. And uh, yeah, and then I guess it was around 2002 or three that that second, I guess working with Pete was, it kind of, the the working with Brian on the the film and TV side of things, that was more, I guess, of an internship. And then when I switched over to working with uh, Pete Stewart on, um, on the major label rock stuff that was became more of an assistant position where I was getting paid a little bit and it was more of a full-time job. And he, I guess around 2002 or 2003 decided to move to California. Um, and that was when I was like, okay, I'm on my own now and I'm going to have to do this, do this thing on my own. And so, um, ever since then I've been, um, uh, you know, just a, a freelance producer and engineer. So that's kind of What's you know, and I've been here in, in Nashville the whole time, so this is my twenty third year, and I guess my about my twentieth year of of doing this all professionally. So that's amazing, man. There, there was a, one little bit of that story that I think is is like that stood out to me, and that was how you met someone while working at Starbucks that mm-hmm. really seemed to kind of create the snowball effect right. moving forward. And uh, I think that's such a really interesting, like a, a really interesting part of your story because you know it really goes to show the. The fact that networking can happen anywhere. Yep, absolutely. And you just have to be ready for it. There's actually, it gets even crazier. Um, So yeah, he came in to Starbucks while I was working. um, And this was when I was still at SAE. He had a BMI hat on. I said, oh, you know, do you write for BMI? He's like, yeah, I'm a composer. And he just saw how passionate I was. I was like, oh, what do you do? You know, how how do you record that? What's your studio like? And and just from that short little interaction, he, he knew that I loved you know, what I was doing. And he was like, let me take you out to lunch in a few days. And so we met up and and it, that's kind of how it all started was just from wearing a BMI hat. But then the crazy thing is many years later, um, maybe my fourth or fifth intern um, was, let's see, he was, my my intern was, uh, his parents were friends with this, this uh, guy who had met at Starbucks. And so uh, Eric, you know, became an intern at the time uh, because of Brian, he connected us, and then I got to know Eric's family and his sister, and who who is now my wife. So you know, <laughs> it just I met my wife from that interaction at Starbucks, uh, which is pretty crazy. That's it, amazing. It just, it's this this chain of events, and uh, you know, Eric, I'm still you know great friends with him too. So yeah, it's uh, you never know uh, what might happen just by you know asking someone about the hat they're wearing. That's, I love that story, man. Like that's such a it's such a small thing that created such an amazing snowball for you. And and uh, yeah, I think that you know people listening to this, it's like sometimes you just got to take that that chance and talk to someone mm-hmm. and you know find that little thing that gets the conversation started and who knows where it yep. leads. And you know, there, there's def- there's definitely that saying. What is it like? Luck is one opportunity and uh, preparation meet or something like that. Yeah, I think you know, that's it. Yeah. And, and I think that you know that that's a perfect example of it right there. It's like, you know, you're ready for it. You capitalize on that opportunity to just, you know, chat with someone and show how eager you were. And there you go. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. I mean, and the same thing, you know, while I was working with Brian, the, you know, the, I mentioned that Pete Stewart was the next guy that I started working for. That was just 
someone coming in, into Starbucks as well and me talking with them and them saying, oh, who's your favorite producer right now? And I said, Pete Stewart. And he's like, oh, we're good friends. Uh, why don't you, here's his phone number. Why don't you call him? And then just called him the next day and that opened up, you know, that door as well. So yeah, you just, you gotta, you know, just be out there and talk to people and you never know what, what kind of doors may open. I love that. That's very cool. Um, another part of what you, your story there was that you, you were working for these guys and, and, you know, you were assisting or interning. And then eventually you got to that point where your mentor moved away and you kind of right. were faced with that decision to go freelance. Had you been freelancing at all before that? Like, were you like, did you already have a clientele of your own at that point? Or were you just like, okay, like this is what I'm meant to do. I'm just going to figure it out from here. Yeah, that was a scary time. Um, and I know a lot of people, you know, making that jump is, is, is hard. And, um, I, I, th- I was doing some projects on the side as well that just, you know, um, word of mouth, some stuff came through. And so I, I had a few clients before, um, Oh three, when I went freelance. So there was a little bit of work kind of coming here and there, but it was, it was pretty dry there those first few years. Um, those were definitely some of the, probably the scariest years of my career, just trying to to build that, you know, clientele. Uh, and that's, I think the hardest part, you know, the, one of the biggest challenges in this industry is, you know, making that transition from working, you know, under someone to then, you know, deciding, okay, I want to, I want to be the boss now. How do I make that happen? And, um, so there's, uh, you know, there's a, we can maybe talk about some of those things too, if you want as to what, you know, I feel like when you're, when you're ready to make that transition, some of the things that I feel like are, which you, some of the things you need to be focusing on. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that because I think that there's a lot of people that are in that position. And yeah, it's, I think like, so. it's like the typical thing that like, I, I've noticed with this with so many people that I know that have started their own businesses. It's like, you know, they might be working for someone and then they're thinking like, oh, this is easy. Like they just do this part of it. And like, I could totally, I could totally do that better or whatever, you know? And then, then they finally go on their own and they realize, okay, it's not just that like, you know, it's not just working on audio. Now it's like, I got to run a business. I have to learn how to market myself and promote and, right. and like all this other stuff that comes along with it. So, um, yeah, let's talk about that, that transition for you of getting into freelancing and learning how to get on, get, get, get your clientele and, and build that business. Yeah. It's something that, you know, I talk with, um, interns about cause this is something that comes up a lot with them. It's like, okay, I've got one more year left of school. Like, what do I do next? And, um, I tell everyone, you know, those first few years are, are typically going to be pretty hard unless you work on just something and it blows up right away. Um, but for a lot of people, it doesn't happen like that. It's a, it's a slow, uh, compounding effect. That's the word I like to use is compounding because that's really what it's been for me is, um, is just, you know, you start by hustling really hard and trying to get a, you know, a few good clients and you just, you know, take such great care of them and they stick around. And then, you know, the following year you get a few more and then you treat them really great. And then they stick around and next thing you know, okay, after a couple of years, you have 10 clients and then they come back for their second and third project. And so it just starts to, to build and build and build over time. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of hustling. There's a lot of great customer service involved. There's a lot of, you know, marketing, like you said, keeping a website up to date, uh, sending out some type of, you know, production or engineering reels that kind of show what you're, you know, capable of doing, uh, networking, like you talked about, getting out there and going, especially if you're in a town like Nashville or LA, where there's a lot of events, um, whether it's open mic nights or, you know, let's all get together and critique songs or songwriting camps. Um, the, you know, another thing is just keeping up with social media, um, what are some of the other things that are really uh, helpful? That, that's just a few that kind of come to mind that, that, you know, you can really focus on. I know now there's things too, like sound better and all that too, where you can put yourself out there as well and, and maybe bring in a little bit of a, you know, a side income stream as well. So. Mm-hmm. No, those are all great tips there. Yeah. It doesn't happen overnight. It's just, it's a lot of little things kind of slowly coming together over time. At least it was for me. So. Absolutely. Looking back at it, do you feel like, like, I feel like I went through this with my own experience and I'm curious if you, if you did as well, but do you feel like when you first got into it, there were a lot of things that maybe kept you busy, but weren't necessarily contributing to like you getting clientele, like I, I, you know, a classic example is like a lot of people say like when they start off a business, a lot of people will start, will get business cards and stuff like that, but business cards itself yeah. don't really bring in clients. You know, it's like, right. you, there's so many other things that are more important, you know, uh, do, do you feel like you ever found that you found yourself in that trap like that? 
I, I think so. Yeah, you, you 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 don't really know where to start. I feel like on those early years, you're like, oh, okay, I've got to market myself. Let me do, like you said, let me print coffee mugs and let me get business <laughs> cards and let me spend way too much time on this website that only five people will look at a day. You know, I, those things don't really like move the needle as much. Um, so, yeah, now that I looking back on it, I think it, instead of taking that money and buying business cards, you'd be better off, you know, setting a goal of once a week, I'm going to take, you know, a producer or an engineer out to coffee and spend that, you know, $5 a week on someone and just start to build relationships. Um, or, you know, going to a show and uh, paying, you know, a cover to get in a show once a week and, and introducing yourself to members of the band. You know, I feel like that's almost a better investment than, you know, spending a bunch of money on stuff that no one really cares about. For sure. Yeah. I think the other big one that a lot of people fall into is like social media, you know, and it's like, well, you know, social media is what all these big brands do. So if I'm just on social media posting stuff every day, then people are going to come my way. And it's like, well, no, no, not really. Because when you're starting, you have nobody following you. And, you know, you can spend all that time marketing on there. But like, if no one's listening, then. Sure. Yeah. You can try to find ways, I guess, on social media to show off some of your skills and your talents um, to maybe start to slowly, you know, get other people's attention. That might not be a bad thing if, if you're, you know, do something really, you get some crazy cool drum sounds that no one else does. Maybe you can make real showing how you do that. And then maybe that'll, you know, next thing you know, it gets 200,000 views and maybe some work could come in from that potentially. Um, But yeah, you're totally right. Um, I I think that's, uh, you know, something that just, doesn't always uh, get the job done for sure. Yeah, there's definitely much more of a a, a proper strategy involved in in uh, you know growing your business and getting started with this, and you know not just feeling like you need to do everything because that's what a professional quote unquote professional business does. It's like you know there there's ways to just get started and find the right people and you know get get those yeah. people through the door. I think social media is good too for once you kind of have some momentum. Um, I think just more of the the interacting with others, net, the networking, getting together to meet people and get to know people and in and, and the scene where you're at is probably better. I, I think social media is really good for just reminding people that you exist and you're out there still doing your thing and kind of that front of mind um, aspect as as opposed to to bringing in work. But it, it could also, like you said, it could be, or like I said, it could be a good way to uh, to show show off what you are. You know, if, if you worked on a really great project, you could put together you know, some little snippet to show that you mixed that and people, someone may hear that and be like, oh, wow, that sounds great. You know, let's talk about maybe mixing my my record as well. So yeah, I think it's, you just kind of need to have your hands in a lot of different things, but yeah, like making the business cards, that's, that's a waste of time probably. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think you just, you definitely have to like assess, you know, the things you are doing because, because even when you are experience at this, you're kind of always reevaluating what's working for you and what's not. And and sure. that allows you to kind of redirect your energy into better places once you realize what's working. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's a great, but, but I agree with you as well that like, you know, social media, it can be beneficial when it is, it's a great nurturing tool, like you mentioned. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, for, for getting your portfolio out there for a lot of people, you know, especially if you have a circle of musician friends already, so not everyone's paying attention to what you're doing. So if you have something on social media that can show that, you know, you know what you're doing and you're getting great results in your studio, then yeah, that's a way to get more people with their eyes on you. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. Awesome, man. Yeah, that's that's very cool. I, you know, I think it's really important for people to hear that story of, you know, having the first few years of the business or, or getting into freelancing being a little tough because it really is like that challenging period where it's like, how bad do you want this? And, right. you know, yeah. are you willing to make it work? And and from the sounds of it, it sounded like you were you were you still working at part time or part time at Starbucks when you started? No, um, no. When I when I made that move, it was there was no ever since '03. There's never been any like you know secondary like side hustles or or other jobs. It's been you know uh, strictly from production mixing. You know back then even some and then also some you know uh, writing royalties and things like that as well. But uh, but primarily production and and mixing work uh, and some track just coming in and doing uh, you know tracking people uh, kind of one-off days and maybe putting guitar on some people's records here and there in those early years i did it was uh, pretty much anything that you know had a budget i was like yes i'll do it you know (laughs) Uh, i didn't turn down much work back then and uh, i think that was you know it it allowed me to once again by saying yes to everything you're you're kind of 
helping a lot of different camps out at the time and you're getting, you know, better at a lot of different things and you're starting to figure out what you love the most. And so I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Um, now I'm more focused in being a bit more of a specialist, but, uh, but back then it was kind of the complete opposite. Um, uh, it was more of a jack of all trades for sure. Yeah, well, that was one of the things I was curious to ask you about, because I, I do know that you've worked on a lot of different styles of music. You've done the rock, bang, pop, EDM, jazz, mm-hmm. soul, singer-songwriter, all that kind of stuff. But I, I do remember reading uh, an interview that you did where you talked about how you were kind of niching down your services and and trying to focus a little bit more on like some of the top 40 pop stuff, because that seems mm-hmm. to be your wheelhouse. So, yeah, I was curious to get your thoughts on you know, niching down and whether people should do that at the beginning or or even at all. You know, Some people never niche down, I guess. Yeah, that's a good question as to when you should do that or if you should. I th- I think it's, you know, different for everyone. Um, some people don't want to. Some people love every aspect. Some people love the production side of things and the mixing side of things. And they also want to master it. And maybe they're control freaks or maybe it's just fun or maybe it's just, you know, because the budgets are low and they can't bring it, anyone else in. Uh, but then, you know, some people uh, also I mean, you want to become specialists and just really get super, super great at one thing. And I think that's a good way to go as well. I've kind of been on both sides of that. Um, for me, I still, I mean, I when I decided to just switch to mixing full time, it wasn't that I didn't enjoy the production side as well. I mean, I still have days where I really miss it. I love interacting with the artist and hiring session players and going to studios and trying things and um, different miking techniques and playing around with that and a lot of more gear involved. And, and that's fun for me. It's just, um, I started to just I get, I don't know. I, I, th- I think it's just over time I've realized out of production and engineering and mixing, mixing has always been that one thing that I've loved more than the others. And I just decided, Hey, I want to I just want to do that every day uh, because that's what I enjoy the most and that's what I'm the best at and I can add the most value by doing that. That's what more and more people are hiring me for. So it seems like that's what people want me to do. Um, And then it gives you flexibility when it comes to maybe wanting to live somewhere different than a music hub. It gives you that remote uh, option, uh, less people kind of coming in and out of the house all the time. Uh, you work on your own hours. There's just a lot of benefits for me. Um, when it comes to mixing, my room is catered more to, uh, you know, it's more of a mix room. I don't actually have any booths, uh, here at the house and, you know, never had a ton of pre's and a ton of mics to, to be able to do, you know, 24 inputs and all that. So it's just, it, it's kind of been a natural progression for me. Uh, and I couldn't be happier. This is kind of the first year where I've, I think the beginning of this year was some of my last, production gigs and then the back half of this year has been strictly mix and going into next year it's the same thing and uh you know don't plan uh, for that to change from here on out so i just yeah i'm just obsessed really now with becoming the very best mixer and just every single day you know trying to get a little bit better than uh, the day before i love that yeah i love that you were able to identify the things that really you enjoy doing the most and and you know, just doubling down on that. And, and I think you're right. It's like when you, when you actually kind of eliminate all of those other things and you can focus on what you enjoy the most, it, it means that you're going to like work harder. Like you said, you want to be the best mixing engineer. So it's like, you're going to work harder. You're going to constantly be optimizing your systems and all that kind of stuff. And you can do that when you have a singular focus, but when you're like all over the place, it's, it's, it's hard to identify where you need to optimize and actually then finding the time to experiment and try things. And yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah. And I also, in the production side, during production, I was just always entering in that engineer or mixer side of my head. And, and it would then, the the creative side would sometimes suffer. And I feel like, and I started thinking, you know, there's so many people that all they want to do is produce. And they're really great at like that thing, uh, even better, better than I'll ever be, you know, on the produ- production side of things. And so it just, it made sense for me to, I, I think I got to a point where it's like, okay, I'm going to let them do that thing and I'm going to do my thing and, and it'll be the best of both worlds. So, yeah. And I'm sure that that's even provided some networking opportunities for you as well, or collaboration opportunities. Cause now you can, you know, send people to other people and, and kind of create that circle of work for everyone. Right. Yeah, I've, I've, I've already this year passed on some production work to some other people and it feels so good. It's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, hiring session players it's, it's just so much fun to like kind of you know take uh take a budget and and you know put it into some people's pockets and let them 
you know, pay their bills with it. It's, that's really uh, fun for me. Uh, and uh, usually a lot of those projects now, I'm actually coming in on the front end and helping some with the tracking and then mixing all those projects still. Um, so then I'm mixing the stuff that I'm tracking, which is my favorite scenario. So it's, yeah, it's, and then someone else has to deal with all the production headaches. So it's, <laughs> it's perfect for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Cause then you, yeah, in the end you're in, you end up getting to work on better quality stuff and have a better mm-hmm. experience with it. And you're not, you know, pulling your hair out during the stuff that you don't really enjoy doing and someone else can deal with it and maybe and do better. Right. Yeah. It's perfect. I love it. Yeah, and I think that that, but that in itself is a hard thing for a lot of people to grasp because you know some people will look at others as competition instead of like collaborators, you know, and and uh, yeah, but but you know I think everything you just said there proves that you know when you collaborate, there's actually more opportunities sometimes to do better things. Yep, sure. Yeah. And there's there's plenty of work out there for everyone. Well, Absolutely, some, <laughs> I think so. I don't know, sometimes <laughs> it doesn't feel like it, but uh, but yeah, it, it, I think I think so. But also, I mean, when you when you just take on everything for the sake of taking it all on, then you sometimes end up give, giving yourself a lot of work that you kind of don't want to get into, you know. And like, yeah. you know, you, it, let's say you take you take on a project for some genre of music that you absolutely hate or whatever, just to, just to take on work. And then let's say that takes off, and do you want to be that person who then takes on all of the, yeah. that style of music from that point on? Yeah, you know? known as the bluegrass producer or something. Yeah, no, that's I don't want that. Yeah, <laughs> right on. Well, I, I, now that you're focused on the mixing side of things, I'd love to talk about your mixing process and to learn a little bit more about the, the work you do with that. Um, so I'm curious to know, like when you start a mix or when someone sends you files to mix, what is your mindset going into it? Where do you start? How do you start? That kind of thing. Yeah, getting in their heads, the producers and the artists especially, their heads is is the very first step for me. Um, I've learned the hard way over the years. You know, I, I used to, I would just barely listen to the rough and just dive right in and go for it and then that's not always um the best uh best of course to take because you find out you know they were really married to the rough and you just did your own thing and it's you know maybe it's cool but it's not what they had gotten used to and what they're wanting so for me it's now more about just having a conversation either through email or phone or text just to go okay how close do we want to stick uh, to the rough? Do we want to, you know, like the rough only a little bit better? Or is it like, hey, just do your own thing. We don't, we, whatever you think feels really good is good for us. And so asking some of those questions, um, making sure that if there are some references out there, uh, what are those? And let me listen to those early on. Nothing worse than doing a mix and going, oh, no, actually, I wanted to sound like such and such new single. It's like, well, it would have been nice to have heard that before mixing the song. <laughs> um, and so getting that kind of stuff out of the way, I'm actually even dabbling now with what I'm calling a mix survey. I don't know if this is a good or bad idea, but I built a form uh, that I have off my website. It's kind of a hidden link that I can just send to, to um, clients, but it's just trying to, like I said, get in their heads before I start the mix. And if you want to s- submit this form, you can, you can just put, you know, your name and the title. And, and it's like, if there's a, if there's a rough mix, I need the link to that. Are there any references? How close do we need to stick with the rough? Um, you know, here's a bunch of, here are a bunch of adjectives, like click the ones that, you know, describe what you're looking for, whether that's aggressive or dynamic or bright or dark or warm or, and, and so all of that information really helps me when I dive in, um, to, to, to the mix. So that would be kind of phase one, just collecting as much information as I can from the artist and the producer. And then, uh, and then it would be listening, uh, carefully to the, to the rough, um, making sure that I have all the same files, that um, are in the rough, and um, if there are references, spending some time with those as well. Um, once all that's happened, you know we can kind of begin the mix prep side of things. And um, if I'm super busy, then in, uh, Ben, my my most recent intern, he will uh, prep from his end and uh, and then send me everything back that's kind of been imported into my template with the markers and routing and all that taken care of. And then if um, yeah, and if I have enough time, then I sometimes just prep things myself. Um, and then, yeah, and then from there, it's just kind of starting the mix. And if you, if you want to walk through kind of in what order that I, you know, I usually work, we can do that as well. Yeah, if you have a specific order that you usually follow, I'd love to learn that. Yeah, I mean, so everything comes into the template. And I typically would start with like kick, snare kind of thing and just get those hitting the mix bus you know, gain staging things and, and getting those hitting the mix bus properly. Um, 
And then, uh, you know, from there, once that's kind of feeling good, start to introduce maybe more of the percussive elements and trying to get the vocal in as soon as possible. Um, and yeah, there, I mean, it kind of depends on the song as to where I go from there. I, I think it would be drums and then maybe the the primary chordal instrument, whether that's a piano or an acoustic guitar, um, and and bring that in, get the bass and the vocal in. But yeah, it, it kinda, every song is a little bit different for me. Um, but yeah, tr- I used to make the mistake of getting like an amazing sounding track together and then, okay, now it's time to bring the vocal in. And that was a bad idea. And I've just learned over, over the years that, you know, you got to get that vocal in you know, sooner than later, just to make sure you make room for it. I mean, the vocal is, the lead vocal is the, the most important track of, of every mix that you do, in my opinion. So, um, yeah, I mean, it may not even be a bad idea to start with the vocal. Uh, and I, I've sometimes, <clears throat> if it's a very intimate song, you know, it usually comes in pretty early on. But um, yeah, that's that's the typical approach that I would take. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think it is really important to get that vocal in early because, yeah, I, I'm much like you. I typically start working on the drums first, but I always try to get that vocal in early because it really can dictate a lot of your top end information. Yeah, you know, like sometimes sure. you get a singer that's got a really nasally voice or something that's really airy, and then it's like that's going to change how you treat your cymbals and all that stuff. So, mm-hmm. you, or, or even how much attack you have on your snare or your kick or that kind of thing. So you do have to factor that in early. Yeah, and the vocal, uh, you know, often dictates the type of space, you know, the ambience of and you know, how either wet this mix is going to be or how dry it's going to be. And so I think by having that and starting to figure out, you know, how you know how much either length or how short and tight this vocal is kind of determines the the length of other things and other elements um, as well. So, yeah, I think it's, it kind of, kind of, you know, tells you what you need to know. And so I think having that in as, as a, as a guide um, is, is definitely a good thing. Absolutely. You talked about how you're typically bringing these tracks into a template. And then you mentioned, you mentioned gain staging. Um, what does the gain staging process look like for you? Like, are you trying to hit a certain number or like, does that matter to you? No, it doesn't. It's just a feel thing for me. And I think just doing it for years now, it, I don't really think about it that much. I, I used to have this auto gain plugin. I forget what it's even called um, from this Italian uh, plugin company but uh and it worked well but it's just it was just one other step and uh, just i don't know it, it it now what i do is i i'm a big fan of the uh soft tube console one of the controller and the the plugin i use um the ssl 9000j um uh, emulation on a lot of my uh, tracks so that's like kind of the first uh plugin in a lot of most of my inserts um, and so that has a, just an input gain knob. And so lots of times it'll just be there or within the, ch- the channel itself and, uh, Cubase, which is what I'm primarily in. There's an input gain there as well, or I can clip gain it down. Uh, so it's just, you know, something along the lines of that, you know, most of the stuff does have to get backed off a little bit just cause it's coming in a little bit too much, but I'm not using like meters. I'm not, you know, thinking about numbers. It's all just, it's just a, a feel thing for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I find it fascinating with gain staging because there's so many different methods to it. Like some people are trying to hit a certain number or get it at zero VU in their plugins or whatever. And then there's also people that will try to gain stage so that all of their faders stay at zero. And like, there's just so many different ways to do it. So um, yeah, it's it's interesting to hear your approach to it. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, like I like to keep my faders, uh, you know, around zero, but it doesn't always work out that way. And then I'm trying to just hit, like I said, getting the the drums to hit the mix bus in a way that it just feels really good. And I'm getting like the amount of compression limiting all that, that I'm wanting uh, from that and then start to bring other elements in and from there. And it seems to usually feel pretty good by just doing that. Gotcha. So would you say that you're gain staging to hit certain, um, you know, like you talked about like compression, for example, like you'll gain stage to maybe hit like 3 dB of compression here or there or something like that. Or are you gain staging more to get kind of a rough balance to, to start? Yeah, it's more of just to get a rough balance to start. Yeah, I'm not really thinking about as much about how it's coming into the next thing. Um, you know, sometimes I'll make those adjustments if that's once I've already kind of diving into the mix. Um, it's, I don't, 
yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't really think too much about it. It's just something that just instinctually happens for me. Um, I try to be less like that these days, you know, looking at less meters, less working, less visually, and just kind of being more of a, a gut ear thing. Um, I don't know if that's good or not, but I like to think that, you know, some of those classic records were, were made the same way. Absolutely. For sure. And it, you know, it obviously helps too. If you, if you have tracks that have been recorded at good levels and not everything like pinned to the top, you know, if you're working with super hot tracks, yeah, you're going to have to pull a lot more down. So, yep. you know, it really depends on what's coming in, I'm sure. Yep, for sure. Yeah. So that's awesome. So you start with your, uh, you know, you get that vocal in, you start working on drums, you've got your gain staging set up. From there, do you kind of have a, a typical process that you go through with like applying additional processing, whether that's EQ, compression, that kind of stuff? Yeah. Uh, and one other thing that kind of I didn't mention before is as far as just like how much time I would spend on things. Um, I, I, in an ideal world, once I've gotten into their head and I've everything's been prepped, ideally that prepping happens a, on, on a day before I actually mix the song. That's my preferred way to work. And if the schedule allows, that's what I would like to do. So it gets prepped. And then when I, you know, pull it up first thing in the morning, um, it's already, everything's already routed in the template, ready to go. The markers are there and roughly gain stage, whether I did that or Ben did that. Um, and then I can just not be in that headspace um, when I'm starting a mix. Uh, so then from there, I would like to, you know, just spend pretty much a full day, uh, whether that's six, you know, or more hours, six to, I feel like the average mix that I do, I spend six to 12 hours, a lot longer than some people do. Um, but I'm a very detail oriented person. And sometimes when you have 120 tracks, it just takes a while to sort through them all and, and get them where they need to go and figure out how to make it all work. But, um, yeah, my ideal scenario was, yeah, to prep the day before, mix a full day, and then the next day, come back to it, you know, first thing in the morning, fresh ears, fresh perspective. And if anything's, you know, wrong, it will stick out right away. And you make those changes, maybe spend a few hours at the most that second day and then send uh, to the client, you know, that first mix for review. So that's how I like to work um, in, a, in an ideal scenario. Sometimes, too, or if it's like an EP or an LP, I'll sometimes kind of jump around and do two or three songs in a day and and move around and instead of just spend, you know, working on one song until it's completely done and then move into the next. It just kind of depends on the mood that I'm in. Um, but I sometimes enjoy jumping around just because every time I get away from something for a little while, like it's much easier to figure out what's still wrong with it when I come back to it. Um, and so that speeds up the process in a way. I mean, lots of times with a mix, you can make some really big, bold moves in those first two hours. And then you spend eight hours doing a bunch of minuscule things that like hardly make a difference, you know? And so <laughs> I like taking some time away and then you can kind of come back and go, oh, and this is still like, that vocal's like 2 dB too hot. Wow, I had no idea because I got lost in all these other things along the way. So yeah, um, yeah. so it just depends, like I said, on the project and and what I'm you know, if, if I'm getting just bored of a, a mix or burnout on it or don't know what else to do, then that's usually a sign that I should jump over to something else for a little while. And working in the box is great for that. I mean, it takes, what, like 45 seconds to open up a project file. Um, and so, you know, why not just jump around a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a couple of things to take from that that I think are really important. Um, and one is that, you know, you were talking about how you'll spend like six to 12 hours on a mix and, you know, that is a lot of time for, for some people to, to work on a mix. And, you know, I think, I think what is to your advantage there is the fact that you've done that preparation stage early. I think that's mm -hmm. a really important lesson for people to learn from this is that like having those kind of conversations with the band allows you to work confidently for six to 12 hours without fear of like, I'm, I'm on a, I'm in a completely wrong direction with this mix. Right. You know, right? right. Cause, cause otherwise if you didn't have that conversation before you could waste a day or two working on a track and then have the band tell you like, no, this is, totally the wrong direction here and then you got to start over and, and you've lost all that time so I, I do think that it's really important like you said to have that that kind of uh prep stage of you know just having those conversations they're simple conversations like you know whether you're just doing it through a form like that where like you're not even having a conversation with the band they're just telling you exactly what they need like mm -hmm. i think that's brilliant um or if you're just spending like a half hour or 10 minutes on a phone call like you you can learn all you need to learn to learn there so that you know you're not wasting your time 
So, yeah, I think if and if you're only to ask one question, it's like how close to the rough do you want this? I think that's that's the most important question. And then the second is probably is there a, a reference you're really in love with and you want it to you know tonally feel like this or whatever. And that, I think that's another good thing. Um, and that could just be a quick text, and that would that could save you a ton of time because I, I unfortunately have you know spent a full day mixing something and then had to rethink the whole, you know, when, when it's like, okay, this is nothing like the rough. And it's like, okay, I've got to really take this back and almost start it from scratch to really get it to, to feel like the rough. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and that's another thing that you got to make sure as well, you know, you got to make sure you have all the files that are in that rough mix. And so sometimes it takes a little while just to do some listening because if you've left out some key elements, uh, cause you weren't paying attention and then you send that first mix off, then it's just gonna, you know, if, that something weird happens with that first mix. It's sometimes hard to like rein it back in and 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 get back on track. You know, I just feel like it, they get in their heads and you know, it, depending on the client. If it's a new client, it's it's can be challenging at times. If it's something you've worked with for years, then it's it's not as big of a concern. But it, I think you really want to get that first mix right, as yeah. right as you possibly can. But that that's interesting because, you know, I, I agree with you. I think that there's a lot of artists that have listened to these rough mixes and they've got this case of demoitis where they're just so used uh, to hearing yeah. it a certain way, right? But yep. I'd, love to, I'd love to actually dig into that a little bit too because, you know, when you're listening to the rough mixes that people are sending you versus where you go with the mix, like what things – what things matter to you in those rough mixes? Because some people would look, listen to those rough mixes and think like, I need to completely, you know, get the frequency balance the exact same. And sometimes that's the biggest problem with, with those rough mixes. So there's like knowing, there's understanding what's in those rough mixes that is important and what's not, right? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, that may be another good question to ask. Like, okay, so you really want it to be close to the rough. Like, why do you love the rough? And maybe it's it's because I love the reverb on my vocal and it's because, you know, the drums are kind of like warm and dark and it's because uh, there's still like some dynamics there or, you know, the the bass is really wide because we put chorus on it. I, you know, I think those are all like great piece of information that, you know, if you could get in advance, that would be good to know. Um, but yeah, for me, I'm... I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm maybe breaking it down into instrument groups and I'm thinking, okay, the vocal, you know, feels like this to me. It's, it's this loud in comparison to the music or the drums, you know, are real dry. Okay. I need to make, remember to make the drums dry. Um, that guitar is panned to the right. So I need to make sure that that guitar is still panned to the right. Those are, I guess that's the kind of, um, dissecting i'm doing i think when i'm listening to the rough more than anything else it's just kind of taking all those pieces or figuring out what all the pieces are and where they have them tonally spatially um those kinds of things i guess yeah that's a good that's a really good point and i also think too that a lot of these people a lot of these artists that are working out on, on their own like they're they're not engineers in their own right you know they're, they're they have a t they may have a daw and so mm -hmm. for for a lot of people like on the basic level they understand things like volume and so you can listen to the volume balances between things because that's usually something that they've been able to figure out for themselves that, you know, they want the vocal a certain level or kick drum a certain level, whatever. Uh, right. So I think that's really important. I think panning is also a really important thing to you. And obviously, I, I do think effects are important as well because anytime for an sure. artist is making that decision to add a reverb or delay or chorus or whatever, that's, that is something that is beyond just the, the base level tracks. So, you know, they've made an effort to go out of their way to, to include that in the rough. So most likely that's something that they want in your version as well. Yeah. Um, I think it's just like, sure. you know, sometimes it's like those, those uh, like really little uh, minuscule things that, that people think that they need to keep in the rough mixes or sorry, that they need to keep in their final mix that was in the rough. And, and oftentimes the engine, the person making the rough didn't really even notice those things. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. I deal with demoitis a lot, and uh, it's it can be frustrating at times to just put everything you got into a mix, and then it's like uh, it's really st still super attached to the rough mix. <laughs> oh my gosh! Okay, well then, just release the rough mix. You know, <laughs> maybe that's what it's going to take. Yeah. So, in your in your opinion, then at the end of it all, like what makes a great mix? A great mix is a mix that really excites me that I love that I can't find anything that I don't like about it that you know the artist loves most importantly and that you know 
creates an emotional response um, when someone listens to it. I think that's, and I think that's the probably the best definition I can give you. Um, yeah, where I'm happy, the artist is happy, producers have everyone involved is super happy with it, and it also, you know, uh, does something to the listener when they hear it. You know, whether it you know, makes them super you know, amped up or makes them you know think about some decision they just made in their lives or whatever. And that's that's a that's what a good mix is, and also just one that showcases, I think, um, the things that need to be showcased, and and also pushes things back that don't need to you know be showcased. I think that's that's also important as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. You, you said something there that I, I want to uh, push back on a little bit there, which was that you said, you know, part of what makes a great mix for you is when you can't find any problems in the mix. And mm, I know for okay. a lot of people listening to this, that is their biggest problem is that they're always finding problems. You know, it's like, it's so easy to be super critical of your own, of your own work. So how do you get to that point where you're like, okay, like this is actually good. And like, I'm not like you, you, where you're not just getting into this trap of finding problems for the sake of finding problems. Yeah. It's, it's not an answer. It's not the most ideal answer, but it's just experience. Is is you know, it just takes time and you just got to wait it out and you just got to do it over and over and over again. And, and you'll get to a place um, where you just, you just know, you just know that it's right. Uh, I think you've heard so many other mixes before you've done so many, you just know what a finished mix is. And, um, and I do remember, um, in 2000 and it was 2004, I think there was like one mix I did 27 versions on just myself. It wasn't even, it was like before the client even heard it because it was like, I'd take it to the car and then listen <laughs> somewhere else. And I'm like, Oh, but maybe that's this. And no, 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 it's actually, and it was just this, this vicious cycle. Um, and thankfully, um, you know, now revisions are more of like just the client, uh, the artist saying, this is what I want, you know, and me making those changes. Uh, it's not as much about me just obsessing over every little thing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not, um, it's not just something that, you know, you can turn on with flick of a switch. It's just, it's just, uh, this experience is what it is. That's when you, I feel like, you know, when it's done. Um, I don't know if that's, really what you're looking for but yeah, yeah that's that's what it seems like for me uh, i don't i don't chase my tail like i used to yeah yeah because I, I know that a lot of people listening to this spend so much time on their mixes just like they're never they're never sure when they're done with it and uh and i feel like a lot of people have different opinions on when they're done with their mix and maybe it's part of their process maybe it's just something they're hearing you know that kind of thing but uh yeah i think sometimes it's maybe insecurity um one one piece of advice I sometimes give people it's like that just spend way too much time on a mix is is just tell before you even start the mix like promise your client on this day at this time I'm delivering the first mix and you have some type of deadline to work towards because if not you'll spend four times longer than you need to on the mix um, and I've I've seen seen it happen a lot with uh, you know interns that have kind of gone on to do their own thing and and just those those first few years just i think just overthinking is what it is um it, lots of times people will you know spend the first six or eight hours and the mix will be feeling great and then they'll spend another 14 hours after that and it'll start to fall apart slowly you know over time after that six or whatever eight hour point uh that you, from where you initially started and so um by just going, okay, I've got the files from you today. I'm going to prep it this afternoon. I'm going to mix it tomorrow. And tomorrow at 6.30 p.m., you will have mix one for me. You know, Creating some type of parameter, I think, is not a horrible idea just to make sure that you don't overthink things. I mean, you, you may run into something and find out that you don't have all the files or that something still needs to be edited and tuned or whatever. And, and those things might happen. But just... Hey, setting a deadline is not a bad thing. Uh, I used to do that a lot with mastering as well when I was producing. Was like, okay, this record we've been working on it way too long. Let's, you know, six weeks out. Let's set this mastering date now so we have something to work towards. Because if not, it might spend another three months, you know, messing with things or people just pushing back their vocal sessions another week because they don't they're not in the mood to to cut vocals. And so, I think you could do something similar as a mixer. Yeah, I love that. I think that that's a great thing to do. And, uh, you know, uh, even with those deadlines, too, sometimes that is a it's just a calibration point at that point, right, where it's like you send off a mix to the artist and you could even say to them, like, I don't even know if it's done, but like, here's here's where I'm at with it right now. Like, let's see what you think of it. And maybe you're on the mark, maybe you're not. And 
you can kind of reassess from that point. So yeah, I love that idea of, of working with deadlines. Um, and it kind of reminds me of something that I saw recently on Instagram you had posted. Um, you made a post saying how it was a post about how limitations can help foster creativity. And, oh, right, yeah. and I was curious if, you know, I think this kind of ties into it. Um, I'd love for you to dive into that a little bit more and just kind of expand on that a little bit. Cause like, I'm curious to know, like, why do you think it is that when we place limitations on ourselves, it, it sometimes makes us work better? Yeah. Well, I just think that when you have too many tools, you just get, you just get distracted. I mean, the, what inspired that caption was I was at this writing camp a couple weekends ago here in Nashville and was just kind of there to hang out, network once again, build new relationships with other producers. And uh, so I'm still networking 23 years in. So uh, if you're looking to build relationships, just this is another reminder that networking matters. So um, yeah, so I was there uh, just offering to help track some vocals or whatever needed to be done on the engineering side of things because there were probably six or seven rooms and, you know, somebody maybe putting down a beat. It was more of a R&B hip hop kind of vibe there. And so, uh, yeah, I was just, you know, tracking somebody playing Rhodes and tracking somebody cutting a vocal. And I didn't have my main computer. I was just on my laptop and I just installed Cubase. So I didn't have all my plugins. I had just stock plugins and just a little, somebody loaned me a two channel interface. And so there just wasn't much to work with, but I found that by not having all these things to fiddle with and plugins to audition, it made me focus maybe more on like the things that matter the most, I guess. Um, you know, if it's cutting a vocal, like it allowed me to think more about maybe the timing of the vocal or was she pitchy here? Or is that a good lyric? You know, as opposed to, Ooh, let me try to put some tremolo on this background vocal. And then all of a sudden you're not thinking about once again, the melody, which is the most important thing. Um, so I think that's kind of what I meant by that. Uh, it also, you know, I found myself being more experimental, like, oh, I don't really know how to play a Rhodes, but I'm going to, you know, run it through this and try to make something. And it, it, I just, I was out of my comfort zone, you know, I didn't have what I'm used to having. And and um, I just, it, it felt like, um, I just felt like a, a different, uh, I don't know, it just went into a different part of my head for a second. And it was, it was kind of, kind of nice because uh, I think we get, when we work in the same room on the same monitors with the same plugins, we kind of just get into this cycle and have these habits that we, it's like, Oh, I always put this on the vocal and I always do this with my drums. And all of a sudden you don't have those plugins anymore. And like, okay, well I need to, you know, do something different now. And it's like, Oh, this is a cool plugin that I've never used before. And so that's, that's kind of what inspired that post. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I think limitations, you know, there's so many different types of limitations you can place on yourself. And, um, yeah, like like you said, like in that example there, it was creating it was creating creativity and and you know inspiring you and um, you know a limitation could be stripping your plugins away. It could be having a deadline. You know, like there's yeah. but I, but I think what the really big thing to take from that is is that it it um, it, it forces you to focus on the big picture stuff. Like like yep. you said, like you know that I think that is. That's really what matters is like, you know, am I on the mark with this? And like, are my vocals sounding good? Is the mix sounding good? Like, you know, if it is, then that's all that really matters. It's not about the plugins you're using and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, if if, it's, if you're working with a deadline, it's like, am I fit, fit, taking care of all the most important elements of the mix mm -hmm. before I get really micro and start nitpicking everything? Um, so, yeah, I, I, I do think that limitations are a really big thing to to place on yourself. And, Yeah. Do you find yourself doing that often, like play, having these like self-imposed limitations? Hmm. Uh, probably. That's kind of fits my personality. Um, I'm trying to think of an example, uh, a recent limitations example. Um, well, yeah, I mean, like um, this may be an example. Uh, like I've found that the less that I solo uh, things the better the mix is going to be. So I've, I've found myself now, like, I don't, this isn't really a limitation. I guess a limitation would be like hiding the solo button altogether, which might not be a bad idea, but just, yeah, creating these, these rules that I have to follow. Um, and I've found that um, the less I solo, usually the more I like a mix, the less that I suck the life out of it. And so that, I don't know if that's a good example of just, oh, I love that. That's a great one. I think that's like my, my mix tip of the month right now. That's the solo button <laughs> is the enemy. Um, 
I feel like a lot often. I think the less that you can use uh, the solo button, the better your mix is going to be because if you solo every instrument and you you know are EQing it in solo, it just doesn't make any sense at all. Um, you're going to find that you're sucking a ton of mid range out of every little element, and then next thing you know, you've got this like smiley face um, sounding EQ on your entire mix, and there's like no impact at all in the mid range. So I think you know if you can create. For example, the limitation would be, I guess, find a way to hide the solo button in your DAW and see if you can do an entire mix without ever soloing a single um, instrument. I mean, if you really need to, I guess you'll have to pull the faders down on everything else or something along those lines. But it's it's not about how we're not mastering, you know, 67 multi-tracks. We are, you know, creating a stereo mix with those 67 things and they all need to play well together. That's what a mix is. And so um, it's you've you've got to be thinking more about the interaction of this, like how does this vocal interact with the other, you know, however many other tracks there are, not how do I make it sound really great, you know, all by itself. No one's ever going to hear it like that. And so, yeah, um, yeah that's a limitation that, I, like I said, I haven't hit the solo button yet, but I the limitation for me now is just clicking it as few times as possible while I'm mixing right now hopefully that's a good example it's hard to think of like something right off the top of my head no, I, but. I love that. that that's a great one like i i love uh with a lot of my coaching students i always give them like little challenges like that kind of thing where yeah it's, you know you could say like okay you can't hit the solo button more than 10 times in the mix or something like that you know or like maybe it's you know when it comes to eq you can only use like a shelf filter or something like that you know like kind of just challenging people to to really think in like these big moves r- right away rather than getting really micro yeah Another one would be, yeah, like you you can only have like three inserts per per track or something along the lines of that. I think it's it's really easy to over process as well. Um, and so, uh, yeah, to I, I've I've just trying I've, I've I'm trying to be more minimal um, with the processing that I do. So that means how like on, the, on my mix bus, how few plugins can I use to make that happen? And um, same with like my vocal chain. It used to just be way too many bands of EQ and too many different compressors and parallel this and parallel. And it was just, it was unnecessary. And so I think just simplifying is another limitation that I've kind of been chasing here uh, the past year or two. Yeah. I love that. I I love that example of, uh, you know, limiting the number of plugins on a channel. I I think that's a really big one. And I've certainly found myself in that trap at some point, you know, like I, I remember opening up some old mixes that I was really proud of, like my earliest mixes and, seeing like, oh, I just had like an EQ, like one one channel, one, one insert on this, and that's all I did, right? Whereas like, yeah. you know, years into my career, I was like loading up, like you said, like having, you know, so many different plugins on my vocals. And it's like, I was really overcomplicating all of this, you know? <laughs> so it kind of forces you to like check back and simplify. Another limitation would be uh, no, you can't buy any plugins for the next year, you know, something along the lines of that, something that forces you to like really learn the ones that you do have, you know, because most everyone has everything that they need uh, in, in their DAW. And I don't know, I just, I think a lot of people are chasing, uh, they're, they're, they feel like their mixes aren't great because they don't have the new BB tubes plugin or the whatever plugin, you know, it's like, you can, if you got whatever, you got to, decapitator make it work with that you know i just i don't know i think a lot of people just think that they can throw hundreds of dollars at plugins all the time to make their work better and it's i think it's the the more important thing is just really getting familiar with the the things that you do have maybe find find that one eq that you love that you know really well and use that most of the time and same with you know a couple compressors and a couple verbs and a couple i mean that's all you need right Mm mm-hmm yeah, I love that. And I think you're absolutely right. I think it's it's so easy for people to get caught up in this marketing hype that you need this plugin to get a pro sound or whatever. And it's like, no, you probably already have like five things in your plugin list that are exactly the same. You just, you just have to learn how to use it, you know? So. Yeah. And you'd probably be better off spending that money treating your room a little bit better, or upgrading your monitors or, you know, something along the lines of it. I think that might make a bigger difference than getting, you know, the, a fifth saturation plugin. Yeah, of course. 
Well, everyone listening to this, I think we just threw out a bunch of great limitations to place on yourself. And, you know, I think everyone should be experimenting with these things, whether it is limiting their plugins or, um, you know, giving yourself a deadline or a time limit or, you know, reducing the number of times you hit the solo button, that kind of thing. I think these are all really good exercises to strengthen your skills. And, you know, maybe maybe don't do it on like a mix where it's like super important, but like find the time to just practice and implement these kind of things. And I think when you actually do that, you'll see really fast growth in your skills because of it. So yeah, man, I, I love those. I love those limitations. He said, I think those are all great examples. So yeah, thanks for sharing good. those, man. Yeah, yeah. That's where my head's at at the moment. Yeah. Well, good place to be then. Yep. <laughs> and I'm sure you're seeing your, your template optimizing as you go through these examples too. Right. And like just getting probably thinner and thinner. Yeah. Every mix that I do, I, I learn something new and it's something that either the technique that I implement, um, or, it's, you know, an, a revision that I make to my template. Uh, it's like, oh, that's like, that's better than any other verb I've ever used before. Or whatever. You know, okay, that's like, let's get rid of something in the template and replace it with this. Or, um, yeah, so I, yeah, I'm always discovering new things. And that's the beauty with the template is it's, it's something that over the years, you just, you, it, you're, you've defined your sound and you're just kind of fine tuning it along the way. And, uh, and there are certain you know, plugins that do come out every once in a while, it's like, okay, that does make a difference after demoing it. And it makes, um, you know, going from like a, for example, like a Waves, maybe a L1 limiter to something like the, you know, Fab Filter, you know, Pro L2. That, that to me, was a plugin that was justifiable um, just because it's such a big part of the mix bus. And, you know, I think it was worth it. Um, but then, like I said, there's some things that, you know, I don't know if you need another plate reverb if you already have two others. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, but anyhow, I'm kind of going off track now. No, no, it's great, man. I love it. You know, I, I think that that's probably a great spot to wrap up because we, we've given people something actionable to do. And, uh, you know, I think that's what this is all about. It's like people listening to this are, are trying to find things to do to help improve their mixes. And I think, you know, giving them these little challenges here, I, I think that's that's a great place for people to start and to learn a lot from. So, yeah, um, yeah maybe, maybe we should start to wrap up here. But uh, for people who want to learn more about you, maybe even work with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, um, so I've had a website for a long time. That's brenthendrich.com, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-H. Uh, Instagram is where I spend most of my time, uh, and that's just at brenthendrich. So yeah, please follow me and let's keep in touch. On Instagram, I, I share you know three or four posts every week and a reel every couple weeks with a mixed tip. Um, and just, yeah, share things that I'm learning along the way. So it's a good way to keep up with me and what I'm doing there. Um, if you are in Nashville, either live in Nashville or visit Nashville, I have, um, uh, a group that meets once a month called summing mixer. And that's just a kind of a hangover coffee at a coffee shop here in town. It's the last Tuesday of every month. So if you're ever in Nashville on the last Tuesday, hit me up and I'll get you all the details. Um, you know, I just buy coffee and have a table reserved and we just talk about, you know, whatever plugins or difficult clients or, you know, <laughs> whatever's on our mind that month. So, um, that's a good way to hang out in person. And yeah, I guess that's about it. I'm doing a thing now too. I didn't really uh, discuss this, um, in our conversation, but I'm also doing a thing now called mix assist. So any producer who is working on trying to mix something themselves, um, and they feel like they just can't get it to where they want, want it to go, then uh, I'm offering three, um, free three hour sessions a month that you can schedule uh, online. And that link is actually off of my Instagram. I have a link tree and it's, it's one of the links off of my link tree. So if you're, yeah, if you're working on a mix and you need some extra help to kind of get it across the finish line, then you could book one of those three sessions a month with me. And I can do that either remotely where I tie into your DAW, or if you're in Nashville, you can, uh, bring some files over here. I actually did one earlier today. So it's just been a great way to kind of see what other people are working on and, and, uh, help them, uh, get it, you know, their, their projects to sound a little bit better. And just once again, it's kind of another form of, of networking really. And just all about building new relationships with people, especially the people working on the kind of music that I want to be involved with. That's awesome, man. I love it. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And I think you shared a, a lot of great stuff here. So people are going to learn a lot from this for sure. Thanks, man. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad that I was able to to share a little bit of that. 
So that was my conversation with Brent Hendrich, and that was awesome. I really enjoyed the exercises that he shared towards the end of the episode there for ways that you can place limitations on yourself to strengthen your engineering skills. And I highly recommend that you actually try these things out for yourself. You know, take some time to open up an old mix, maybe start from scratch and just place some limitations on yourself. And I think that it'll be a very therapeutic exercise for you. And this is definitely something that I've done with myself. Like I've definitely placed limitations on the types of EQ filters that I can use. I've placed like really crazy deadlines, like a 30 minute mix or that kind of thing. You know, sometimes the results of these limitations aren't necessarily going to mean that you get the most perfect mix, but it's more about just working from a big picture point of view and learning to work more efficiently and streamline your process. And sometimes when you place these restrictions, it forces you to think differently. And sometimes from that exercise, you learn more efficient ways to work faster or smarter or get better results with less tools. So, you know, by going through these exercises, I think you're going to learn a lot and it's going to be a great challenge for you and it will certainly strengthen your skills. So definitely make sure to give that a shot in your mixes and just take the time to practice this stuff and impose these limitations on yourself frequently because the more you do this, the faster and better you're going to get and the more experienced and instinctive you're going to get with your skills. So definitely give that a shot. So I hope that you enjoyed this episode and I hope that you got a lot out of it. If you did and you're new to the podcast, definitely make sure to subscribe to it. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And if you're looking for tips on how to improve your mixes and get them sounding as good as you hear them in your head, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is a website where I help out musicians with creating pro sounding mixes from their home studios. And on that site, I've got a ton of great resources designed to make it easy for you. And one that I want to point you to is a book called The Mixing Mindset. That is a book where I break down the process of mixing step-by-step, showing you what to listen for, how to dial in the settings, what tools to use, all of that stuff so that it takes the guesswork out of the process and makes it super, super simple and gives you a beginning-to-end formula to follow when it comes to your mixes. So once again, make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. All right, we've reached the end of the episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.